Today on Point01, Aaron speaks with a leading climate tech journalist and GreenBiz editorial director, Heather Clancy. Heather's award-winning work covering transformative technology has been published in Entrepreneur, Fortune, the International Herald Tribune, and the New York Times, among other publications. Heather interviews countless entrepreneurs like those on the GreenBiz 30 Under 30 list she compiles and titans working on climate solutions like Al Gore. No one has their finger on the pulse of climate tech and corporate sustainability quite like Heather, and it was illuminating to hear her perspective on the field. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Heather. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, it's Aaron Cohen with the Point O One podcast, and I'm here today, and I'm excited to speak with Heather Clancy, who is the editorial director at GreenBiz and uh, has a, a vantage point that I think is is really important for the Point O One community, which is that she spends a, a lot of time thinking about the intersection of, of of sustainability and profitability. So, Heather, welcome to Point O One. Thank you for having me. Heather, let's begin with this. How optimistic are you that the corporate climate beat, as you have called it, is a beat where the results are going to be transformational over the next few years? That's a very big question to start with. <laughs> so I I feel very strong. I feel very optimistic, I would say, that it is a beat that I feel like I want to dedicate my time to because the action in the climate movement right now, as far as technologies and innovations is being driven by the corporate sector. Um, there's been some good state state movement. Um, the New York organization, NYSERDA and um, California have been well supporting innovations and, and I'm sure there are many other states that I'm just not naming right now, but um, because of the federal level sort of uh, sidestep, I will just put it that way, of, of innovation when it comes to climate, I think um, that the corporate world is where the action is happening. And that could be at both the big company vantage point, but also in the small, the small entrepreneurial realm. And there's, there's obviously very different things happening um, on both ends of the spectrum, but very also collaborative, right? So we need, we need the work on both ends of the spectrum in order to get to where we're going. So when, so when you wake, when you wake up, uh, you know, on a Tuesday morning and you think about what's in front of you for where the action is, where the stories are, how do you, how do you split your time between that interesting dichotomy you just talked about, right? I mean, there's this Fortune 500 community, and then there's this incredible entrepreneurial community. Uh, how, how do you how do you allocate your time? How do you think about covering all of them? Well, I don't usually I don't think about it necessarily through the the lens of one side or the other. I what I look for is where there's work happening um, between the two communities, right? So. I do believe that very strongly that collaboration is where we what we need to see in order for this movement to advance. So, so for, as an example, if you look at the venture capital funds that are investing in what we you would call what I would call climate tech, and so I think about that in um, a couple of different ways. I think about that as innovations for food systems disruption, so like alternative proteins or uh, precision agriculture or something like that, uh, or for carbon removal, right? So inventions that help with um, monitoring or 
inspiring removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The thing that the venture capital community is looking for right now is whether or not that entrepreneur, that cool startup has a relationship with a big company. Are they piloting? Are they working with a big company? Do they, does that entrepreneur have traction within the fortune 500 community as customer or as distributor or as both? It could be as it could be both. It could be as a customer. So um, if you take like a, uh, some of the big oil companies are, are being very aggressive right now in investing in especially carbon removal, right? So they want to perpetuate their model as long as they can. One way that they are thinking about doing that and are moving to do that is by making investments in companies that are helping remove carbon. So, you know, put this little startups technology with our big, you know, oil exploration, you know, like, so it, it helps perpetuate the model, right? So they can keep that operation going a little bit longer if they have that carbon removal sitting there next to it. So it's, it could be that in that sense, they could be a customer. However, we also see companies like Shell making investments in those companies so that they can be, you know, because they know that those companies might be used by others. So they, they're, they're an investor, right? So the, the corporates could be an investor, they could be a customer. Um, and in some senses, they could be a distributor because, um, again, to stick with Shell, they have a services arm that goes out and advises other companies on what to do to bring down their carbon. And they could be specifying that, that same technology. So there's, it's, it's, it's many headed. If you, it's like a Hydra <laughs> relationship. Is there an example that you're thinking of where you're like, wow, this climate tech company, cause they got in bed with this corporation. I think I'm more optimistic. Appeal sciences. Appeal is a company that's been around for probably six or seven years now. They are using plant material, so material from plants, to create a coating for fruit that, is, that, that extends the shelf life of things like avocados and, and other fruits that are being transported across the country. So Appeal Sciences um, they have all sorts of interesting investors like Oprah, who's an early investor. But, um, you know, they have now become, become involved with many grocery chains. Um, and so that enabled them to get even more funding from companies like some, some more of the classic um, venture capitalists that you'd see out there in the marketplace. So they're ones that they kind of came up but may, managed to get some relationships in place and then kept get, getting more funding as a result. As you reflect back on your reporting, is this moving in the right direction? Are we seeing the beginnings of more Teslas? Yes, we are. First of all, I mean, just to stick with appeal for, for a moment, I mean, food waste, right, is a climate problem, right? right. But, but it's also a operational problem for a supermarket or for a distribution company that's dealing with food, they don't get the money out of that. If they can extend the shelf life of, of a product, they're more likely to get the money back on that. So that is a, there is an absolute um, monetary value in them <laughs> extending the shelf life of that. So that's a, that is without a doubt. I would say also that, that one area, and, and this is, this has been one of these, you know, hurry up and, and it takes 10 years for it to like break through. But I would say that fuel cells are, are on the cusp um, of having their moment. The sort of the, the idea that you could have a battery 
or um, I mean, fuel cells is slightly different, but if solar plus storage, let's take that, that you could have a battery with the solar panels and, and be able to have a microgrid um, at a company, right? So um, there's a, a company called Enchanted Rock that's doing a lot of microgrids now. And they're, they've been, the, the trouble with microgrids and, and companies wanting to put them on their on site, on their, on their property to back up um, their operations or to even provide power if the grid is down, um, is that the financing model has been very tough, tough, right? So it's been very expensive. They don't know how long the battery, you know, this has been lots of different reasons why people haven't gone whole hog, but also the regulatory environment. So it's like hard to figure out, can you connect it? Where does it have to be? You know, who, who owns the, the, the output? Can it be going back to the grid? So there's just been kind of a mess as far as finance and regulatory, regulatory stuff. However, right now, and um, we, we've just had a series of, of <laughs> very interesting extreme climate events in California, in Louisiana, in New Jersey, here where I am, where the power has been challenged, right? Um, the, the acuteness of the power uh, resilience problem has become more and more pronounced um, over the past two or three years, and especially over the last few months where people are at home and they're, they're noticing just how vulnerable we are to not having the power on. So I would say that microgrids are, are something that's going to have a moment. Now I don't, and and part of the part of the, the the leading the leading edge of the companies there has been Bloom Energy, right? They got people to think that yeah, you could put this thing, it produces power, it's generating power, it's providing backup on my site. You know, they did a good job of of. They're not they're not on the renewables thing yet, right? So they they use they're they're one of these questionable climate um, impact companies because they use a lot of natural, they use natural gas right now as their fuel source. However, they are working on alternatives to that, you know, we'll see, but they still have managed to, to prepare the market for this concept, right? There's a lot of them in, in Connecticut. Is your sense that there is a possibility that we really are getting around the corner on, uh, on, on storage? And that there is an iPhone out there, and I don't mean it from a consumer standpoint, but I mean it from a usability standpoint, um, that we're getting closer and closer, because that would be transformative for so many of these ideas that are percolating around the energy sector. So, <laughs> is there an iPhone? I, there's not really an iPhone, but there's a problem, right? So what the, the iPhone did is that they solved a a problem. They solve the, do I need a, how do, how do I keep track of my schedule in the, in the way that means the most to me? And how do I become less tied to my office so I can be out with my customers, but not be cut off from my customers or my email or my schedule? But I mean, if you remember, and you referenced it before, I covered many, many, many smartphones before, before the iPhone. Actually, the, the application-centric thinking Right. It wasn't like here, have this thing. It was here. I'm solving your problem. And so to go back to the microgrid thing here, I'm solving your problem. I know. Oh, you have a financing problem. Okay. So what if we give, what if we work with, you're in a community, you're in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, okay. There's five companies there that want a microgrid. 
hmm, okay, maybe we can get the five of you together and, oh, you're going to buy these resources in, tan in tandem together and it's going to take your costs down for each one of them. So we're going to go to a community approach to finance this thing. Um, oh, you're stop and shop and you have umpteen million <laughs> locations or, I mean, I don't know how many locations they have. Oh, you need this thing at this store? Okay, well, why don't we do it um, at 10 stores and um, it's going to cost this and we're going to finance it. No, by the way, it's going to be service. You're not going to pay for the technology upfront. Um, you're going to provision it on it. You're going to pay a monthly fee, just like you pay for iPhones, right? Okay, you pay for the software, you have a subscription. And now many of the microgrid companies are starting to work the energy as a service, right? So energy as a service, microgrid as a service, however you want to, to call it. Um, you know, I think that the, and that's a, that, that, the, if you, if you, if you're hoping to get like little advice and tips out of, out of this web, this podcast for your audience, that would be one thing that I would say to entrepreneurs. Don't think, try to sell a thing, try to sell an outcome, try to solve a problem, right? So there's so many um, really smart people that have this vision and, but they can't quite talk about what the problem it solves. And that's just, you have to be able to talk to solve a problem. Well, Heather, that's, I mean, that's something, you know, there's this interesting juxtaposition between the clean uh, uh, tech or, or climate tech. And I mean, th these are two separate things, but the clean tech industry, at least being incredibly resilient in employment, creating a huge number of jobs, that, that that's a that's a heavily celebrated kind of idea, uh, certainly by the clean tech community at a minimum, uh, and by the environmental movement more broadly. And then there's this: it's very hard for innovations to get traction. And I struggle to juxtapose those two things. Right? Death by pilot is a reflection of the fact that it's very hard for companies to break through and scale their their you know fuel cell company, their alternative food company, their urban garden company, whatever it is, right? Um, why, like, as you think about, again, you've got this front row seat, how do you parse that tension? Well, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. You do have to have a, a, a savior, if you will. You do have to have one, someone who's going to take a chance um, and, 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 invest in the technology. Um, but that's the other reason that the venture capitalists would want to invest in it because it, it might scale. So is this a failure on the part of the climate community's entrepreneurs to understand how to properly calibrate the phase that they're in as an early stage company? Is it a failure? I mean, because in the tech space, which undoubtedly is a more mature category, right? You know, no matter how many, no matter which part of the tech space you think of, you know, the rules have been written. There's all these frameworks and methodologies for uh, product market fit and customer development and all these terms in the tech community. Does the climate community not have the same methodologies that allow them to grow at scale? I mean, I'm thinking about my own company, right? No, no, they, they do. I mean, they should, and if you talk to any venture capitalist that's, that's putting their money into climate tech, they have, they use the same due diligence for what that company has to do. But more of them are starting to look at the climate impact, right? So how much, what is the potential for this company to take that much carbon out of, what is the actual 
what actual social impact or climate impact are they going to have? So they're starting to look at that. And I don't, there isn't a very clear way to measure that right now or to set that up as a founder. So I think that is one frustration and, and something that needs to be worked on more. But that, again, is where the, comp- the working with a bigger company comes in because, like, take as an example, um, you know, they're not really a startup, so it's hard to characterize them that. But at because Chutera, Chutera is a precision agriculture company, right? Um, they're part of Land O'Lakes. And oh, by the way, they're also now going to be part of something that Microsoft is doing for like a cloud that 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 focuses on regenerative agriculture and the impact of regenerative agriculture. So small startup started working with Land O'Lakes, which has all of these farms, right? That need to do something <laughs> that need to test things like the result of, um, of cover crops, like how much can cover crop help me sequester carbon in my soil? What impact does it have on water runoff? How is my operation, um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions as a result of, of doing these things. Truterra helps measure that. So Land O'Lakes cooperatives are using that software to help measure that. Now that data set gives you something to benchmark against. So now what, what we're ho- they're hoping to do with the Microsoft relationship is put that into the cloud where other operations, other organizations can now say, okay, I started doing this. How do I look against other people and have the, um, as a farmer, to have that information to help benchmark. So that's like a, an example of I'm kind of off on a tangent right now, but that's an example of something that um, can scale and how you get to scale. But in the end, I think one of the things you're understandably, you, you say you're off on a tangent, but a lot of it has to do with the enormous complexity of 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 this ecosystem, right? I mean, you just blended Lando Lakes, a climate tech company, and Microsoft, right? And you're just being able to tell the story is somewhat challenging. These things are not simple to understand. They're they're not. And I actually want to give you another like weirdo example to think about. Um, there's a company called Rivian, right? That that does um, electric vehicles for delivery. They kind of were not really on them. I mean, they were they were going to be on the map, but but it sure helped that Amazon bought a hundred thousand vehicles from them, right? And so now, as a result of that relationship, they they've kind of catalyzed that whole marketplace. Like now, all, everyone in that marketplace, all those startups in that marketplace, are now getting more attention from the UPSs of the world and the DHLs and um, the other. And also the, the all the corporate fleet managers. So some so some a company like Anheuser Busch InBev, right, that has beer delivery vehicles now, thousands of you know. So every big company like that has some kind of fleet. So now the other thing I'm the other elements I'm going to add to this because when you when you think about electric vehicles, what are the knocks usual knocks about electric vehicles? Well, one, okay, they're great except they're using uh, power from a grid that's dirty. Okay, so, you know, you have a number of utilities now that are working on electric charging stations and trying to somehow tie those to their renewable energy goals. That's such a, by the way, the grid doesn't have to be dirty. It does give the utilities, I mean, if you look at National Grid, for example, those companies that are investing in renewables are now 
integrating the, those strategies with their electric vehicle charging strategies. There's a whole service ecosystem that could build up around that. So that's like another tangent, like that's another market that's being affected. But the other knock against um, electric vehicles is what happens to the batteries, right? After the battery is not capable of making that thing go from point A to point B effectively. One of Tesla's co-founders, J.B. Strobel, has a new startup, Redwood Materials, which is guess what? Gonna take those batteries and create new um, applications for them. And Apple's done a little bit of the same with its circular economy initiatives, like for example, aluminum, right? When it was trying to figure out how do you make the aluminum more sustainable and like it got some other, got some providers in that marketplace working on processes to do just that. Um, so that, yeah, that's the power of the big, right? The big, the big RFP. Yeah, I, and in the case of Apple, Amazon, and Google, the big is beyond big and they, ha they have so much power. And so much ability to move markets. Walmart's been like that historically. They have been. I would. I would say I would have to give props to Walmart um, for for being for doing that for a long, long time. Actually, because they they have been along with um, Target, really instrumental in in taking a lot of toxics out of out of the things that you, that the you know healthcare. Um, sorry, personal care products. You know things you put on your skin or you know consume. They've, they've been, they were really ahead of that. Heather, um, I feel with our time running out a little bit, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about your um, recent interview with Al Gore. Uh, but also just because as I was reading, you know, preparing for our conversation, you give him credit for you doing the work you do now. And I was really struck by that. Can you both talk about that? And then I'd love to talk to you about kind of how you felt about interviewing him. And let's one, one question at a time. What did you mean when you said, Hey, Al Gore is responsible for putting you on the climate corporate beat? Well, so when I, I referenced before I got laid off, I, I used to be a, I'm a recovering tech journalist, right? So, although I'm not really recovering cause I still cover technology a lot, but I was, at, I was at a, you know, an information technology trade for a long time before I got on this beat and got laid off. And I had been at the time focusing on um, starting to understand like the whole electronic waste movement, right? So what happens to that iPhone once, once you're done with it? I, I had been dabbling in that and, and I had been more and more convinced that that was like just really interesting. And, that, and I had started reading about green technologies like, okay, how do you make that data center more efficient? And what, what, energy, you know, what is the energy efficiency equation of this light here in this, this, you know, how do you go out and put LEDs in places and um, all uh, fuel cells were, you know, just starting to be talked about at that time in, in a, in a more consumer, you know, like mainstream way. And I thought about just the, as a journalist, you can, you can, you can pick any beat, right? And I could, at the time, like after I got laid off, I could pick any beat. And I just thought, well, I would like to write about things, technologies that help address the climate crisis, you know, and that I've always been interested in the environment. I've always had that bent. And I figured, frankly, it was, I could use my knowledge to help perpetuate that. And I saw that the federal sort of, I, I've always believed that um, the business world even though it's done a lot of bad things with respect to the climate. I mean, like there's so many examples of just horrible 
chemical disasters and so forth. And, and there's been a lot of bad actors there. The power of, of, the, of capitalism to solve the problem, I think is very profound. And I, I just sort of believed, yes, I want to cover climate and I want to cover how the business world can help address this problem, not just be the bad guy all the time. They've done the bad stuff. They have the power, they have the technology, they have the innovation, they have the resources, they have the smart people. There's got to be a better way of addressing this. And that's why I picked the beat. So this was all in the wake of the 2008 crisis, I guess, right? This is really hap- happening then. You, so to, you say, hey, maybe this is a new... This, this is a new area for me to jump into. What, what's that ride been like for the last decade? Um, you know, it's kind of been similar to the tech, you know, hurry. Do you feel like, oh, this is the year, this is the year. I don't know how many, how many years of microgrids there's been, but there's been a few, um, you know, and maybe this one will end up being the same. I, I, you know, the difference I think right now with that is the financing a little bit. And finally the regulations are, are easing up a little bit. Um, the 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 most frustrating thing for me and i and i as a as a reporter as a journalist i'm not, i'm not, i don't know i mean you're you're not supposed to be subjective and get too passionate about your topic at least in your stories but it's been very frustrating to, for me to watch just sort of all of this progress be systematically dismantled in the last you know 3 plus years um but at the same time the, one of the reasons for my optimism is that the the business community has not let that be a detriment to, to what they're doing. They have not let that, you know, if anything, they, they, they're, they're more strongly believing that they need to get their operations more in line with the Paris Agreement than ever. And that's why I, I just feel like there's so much innovation, there's so much potential. And if, in the U.S. at least, if the government just at least stays out of the way, if it doesn't try to be the federal government, I'll say, the federal government stays out of the way. Um, at least that's sort of what what you could hope for with the current administration and who knows what will happen after November. You know, I feel like there's so much promise and so much energy that cares now that, um, and, 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 and this COVID thing is really, I think it's helped make people be a lot more human. <laughs> I think you have a lot of CEOs out there that are now just sort of the, Environmental Social Governance Movement, ES, social, humans, people, part of that equation has really been much more pronounced. I have to ask you how you feel that's manifested in your six months at home. I mean, how are you feeling and seeing that and experiencing what you just said? Is that happening in your interviewing? Where is that coming from? say that it's coming it's happening in the interviewing but it's also happening with the investors the investors um you know the one of the reasons that the companies are 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 staying steadfast to their climate commitments is because the the people that are investing in those companies want to see it so like the big funds the black rocks of the world the the pension funds right they're demanding that the social part the the um that that you know if there's bad labor practices in your supply chain like and if you don't know why don't you know like that's a problem and i think that one of the one of the uh, i would i would definitely credit the the younger generations with also just kind of being fed up with with companies saying they're they're good but then having these other 
bad behaviors. I mean, that's, it's been a, that's, that's one of the knocks that people have had about Walmart, for example. And it, it was something that made it, has made it frustrating to cover Walmart's really good progress on environmental stuff was that they did have some questionable, uh, you know, reports of questionable things in their supply chain and, and, and with the people and how they treated their people. So I think their labor practices, their labor sure practices. Under, so you can't the... be a sustainable company if you do not treat your people properly. And I think that's what you hear more CEOs saying right now, now, whether they will believe this after we have a vaccine, I don't know. I hope, I sure hope so. But you, you yourself, in your reporting, have noticed a marked change in their commentary. Yes, absolutely. In the, absolutely. In the last several months. I, yeah. I, I think. I mean, I think that's really interesting. All right, you've got this eight-week sprint to the election, and everybody's in a sort of a wait-and-see mode. But if you could sort of make, you know, be, if we could just leave the election aside, um, or is it even possible to talk about where the climate movement's headed uh, without talking? No, about I think it is. Uh, you know. It, what what the election will affect is is the is the tactics of what they do. It won't affect the the very real need we have for technologies that remove carbon, and that's a big focus um, for the companies that have plans. Like so, I mentioned Microsoft a couple times and Amazon and so forth. And many of the um, you know many of those organizations, and actually even Boston Consulting Group, which I wrote about this week, they are looking to invest. They are looking to invest in technologies that remove carbon. And that's, I don't think that's going to change. I really don't. I mean, unless some regulation gets passed, which, which I, don't, I don't see from either administration, potential administration, that, that prevents you from investing in technologies like that. I mean, they, they, want, to, they want to have a better message for their customers. You know, so... So yes, um, why are companies doing this? I think there's, they're doing it for a couple of reasons. One is, is they want to honestly and really realistically remove the impact of their operations because it is, um, it's a good financial decision, right? So it, it helps them from a cost benefit standpoint, but it also is because it makes their employees happy and their customers happy. And if they're not working on it, then they're not going to be perceived necessarily as someone that someone wants to buy from or work for. And I believe that that won't change regardless of the administration. So I believe that the commitment, um, and, and I think that food in particular and carbon removal are, are areas where that there's a lot of innovation potential. And, uh, you know, I love the, the cold chain stuff that you were talking about, because that's a huge area. You know, it's, it goes back to the food waste, you know, keeping that food fresh, keeping it um, you know, get, getting it to where it needs to go in a safe way. And, and it's a massive use of energy. I mean, it's, it's both, it's, it's, it's also that, and then it also has a vaccine incredibly. Now it has a major vaccine. The transporting of vaccines thing is a really big, I mean, I think that's the, the thing that's coming up for the world is, you know, even if we have a vaccine and we can manufacture a vaccine, transporting a vaccine from say India or China all over the world is going to be very, very challenging at the kind of scale that we're anticipating doing it. So and I, I feel like that's been a somewhat underreported part of the story. And I, I do have concerns there, but that's for another conversation, another podcast. 
Heather, you were so nice to hang out with us uh, this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on Point One. Thanks so much to Heather for taking the time to share some of her knowledge about sustainable business. If you want to stay up to date with Heather and her work, please follow her on Twitter at Green Tech Lady. The Point One podcast is produced by Therma, a smart refrigeration monitoring company. Make sure to subscribe to never miss a conversation and leave us a review. We look forward to our next Point One conversation.